Hey, Stranger Rangers, this is Bree. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. All right. Uh, well, welcome back, guys. We took a little week off last week to just kind of hang and do some family stuff and uh yeah just have some personal yeah. time yeah so that gave me a week to um do a little bit of a deep dive if you did not listen to the episode from Halloween where I did three little mini cases um you can still go back and listen to it yeah but we're gonna do a deep dive into the first case that I talked about which was the murder of Martha Moxley oh nice and um oh man there's just so much to unpack with oh, wow. this case. Um, I mean, you kind of already have a gist of it, you know, right. from hearing the, the, the quick version of it, but so many more layers to this and a much bigger case than I was even aware of when I first, you know, stumbled right. upon it, just trying to find, you know, something that happened on Halloween. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Let's so do it. Martha Moxley, she is from, which I originally thought it was pronounced Greenwich, but it's actually Greenwich, Connecticut. It's spelt like Greenwich. So it's kind of <laughs> one of those uh, Prescott Prescott yes. situations. So right. we're going to sound like we live there and pronounce it correctly. So Greenwich. Greenwich, okay. Connecticut. It's one of those things like Portland too. Like if you're not from here, you wouldn't know it's, you know, Willamette instead of Willamette Mm -hmm. and you just kind of have to be a local or look it up so all right Greenwich you you stick out like a sore thumb when you're pronouncing it the (laughs) wrong way where are you visiting from you obviously do are not a local sitting there with an umbrella yeah you're not a local (laughs) pretty much exactly So 15-year-old Martha and her family moved from California to the affluent suburb of Bellhaven in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they made this cross-country move for her dad's job. Okay. And Martha um, was a quick fit-in in her social life, you know, transferring to a new school. She attended Western Junior High School. She was a she was a straight A student. She played basketball. She was involved in the school newspaper and she was even voted most popular. So she Aww. built a reputation for herself really really quickly. Yeah. And such a hard age, you know, middle school to just like seem, seamlessly find yourself a spot you know, and so involved too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I hated middle school. That was like the worst kids (laughs) are so mean. So, um, you know, Martha had, had no problem fitting right in and it's really no surprise because she was said to be very kind. She was friendly, outgoing, made friends very easily. And just this real like blonde hair, natural beauty, probably laid back vibe girl from California. Right. You know, yeah. Moving into this area. So like I had kind of touched on with the last episode, Martha's murder is said to be like one of the most captivating crimes because it took 
over 25 years right. for them to even convict somebody. So it was, it was a wild goose chase for a really, really long time. So to dive into the night of Martha's murder, this took place on October 30th, 1975, and Martha had attended what they called a little mischief night with some of the neighborhood kids. So they were out doing things like toilet papering houses, probably doing ding dong ditch, egging. And I know that we kind of talked about how, you know, those activities don't really seem to happen with kids anymore. Um, and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with like pretty much almost every home has a ring security system. I'm sure part of it, but I don't think kids are are out and about like they used to be anymore either. No. TikTok dances have taken priority over egging and (laughs) and ding dong ditch. So I remember getting my egged house, my, my egged house, my house egged in high school. And I never found out who it was. And I was like, my feelings were really hurt. I was like, who did I actually piss off enough Oh no, my garage, but the only thing I remember that was kind of along the same lines of like a prank and some kind of food involved was some girls in high school. They bolognied and sodaed a car, which doesn't sound bad because you just stick the rounds of bologna onto the car, Mm -hmm. but you put those two things on a car in an Arizona sun and it'll corrode the car. Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to say something like that. Yeah. So that's the most I remember happening. But like toilet papering and egging, I never saw it nor experienced it myself Same uh, in high school. So. Oh, my gosh. Bologna and soda. Yeah. Got to watch out for those deli meats, man. Right. Like, why are these 15-year-olds walking with bags of bologna? That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Well, there was no bologna on this evening, but there was plenty of other stuff going on. And amongst this group of neighborhood kids were the Skakel brothers, Michael, who was also 15 years old at the time, and then his older brother, Thomas, who also went by Tommy as well. And a lot of stuff that I looked up about this case, but for this rundown, I'm just going to refer to him as Thomas. Um, Fun fact, the Skakel brothers were cousins to the very, very well-known Kennedy family. And yes, we're talking like presidential Kennedy. Actual Kennedys, yeah. Yes. So the Skakel brothers' father was the brother to Ethel Kennedy, who was the widow to Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in L.A. all the way back in 1968. Okay. So about seven years before this case uh, took place. Yeah. So that's kind of how they tie into the Kennedy family. And that does end up playing um, a decent sized role in how this whole situation plays out. Like it's at least brought up again. It is. Definitely. So after the group finished their night of mischief, some of them ended their night back at the Skakel household. And witnesses said that around 9.45 p.m., Martha left that evening and headed home. And she, from what I understand, was a very close neighbor to the Skakels. So it wasn't like she had to go walk a mile to get home. It was literally a situation like across or up 
the street. Sure. Sort of thing. So that evening when Martha didn't return home, her mom was obviously very worried. She started calling around the neighborhood to see if anyone had seen her. Um, she had no luck. And around 3.45 a.m. was when she reached out to the Bellhaven Police Department and a search started looking for Martha. That's now, late or early, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, six hours later yeah. after she said to have left, you know. And so a search started and her friends and family quickly took to the streets and her mom stayed back at the house just in case Martha ended up coming sure. home. Now they looked all night and they didn't find anything. And it wasn't until around noon the next day that Martha's friend, Sheila McGuire found Martha dead beneath a pine tree in the backyard of her home. And I am guessing, okay, we're 1975. We're in Connecticut. I've never been to Connecticut, but I can imagine, especially then, if not now, the properties are probably pretty large. That's what I was thinking. Especially if you're living in a really nice suburb like right. Bellhaven, I'm sure that it was not uncommon for the houses to probably be sitting on roughly an acre-ish right. of property. Probably some woods in the back. Like there's some, yeah. Yep, exactly. Um. Martha was found lying face down and it was obvious that she had been bludgeoned to death because, um, she was bloody to the point that her blonde hair was unrecognizable. Oh, wow. Yeah. Her pants and underwear had been pulled down, but there was no, um, evidence that a sexual assault had taken place. However, investigators do believe that this was most likely part of the motive for the attack. Sure. Especially with her pants and underwear being down. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Now, detectives also concluded that her body had been drugged about 60 to 80 feet to where they found her lying underneath the tree. And this was because at the end of the driveway, they had found a pool of blood, leading them to believe that that's where the attack had first started. Yeah. Given all the blows to the head. And everything like that. That's a long ways to move someone. I looked over because I was like, what's the straightest line I could find? And I'm like, that's mm -hmm. like 60 to 70 feet. That's that's pretty lengthy to drag someone. Yeah. Given a girl who, I mean, I don't know her exact height and weight, but we can probably assume at 15 years old, she was maybe around like 110 pounds. Right. Right. You know, so um, not just like dragging something super no, Light. and it's not something you can carry either. So it's just it's a 60 feet. It's just a, it's about six car lengths if you yeah. think about it that way. So that's just a long way to move someone. It is most definitely. Yeah. Now, next to Martha's body, they found pieces, four to be exact, of a broken six iron golf club. And those pieces were found near her body. Now we're talking about <laughs> an item that is made out of metal and they are yeah. finding this in four different broken pieces. Like how you got to be beating that thing pretty hard. And you got to be picking it up again to re-break it. Exactly. So the authorities were actually able to trace this golf club back to the Skakel household when they realized that this exact club was missing from a set that they had at their house. And I believe the golf club 
set um, belonged to the Skakel brothers' um, late mother. It was okay. her set. Her set. So, and I don't know much about golfing. Mind you, I even went to, to Top Golf this week and I don't remember. Is Six Iron <laughs> the like a big fat head ones or is that like the skinny ones? Um, I don't know a ton about golf either, but I'm pretty, I can say pretty confidently that the one with like the really big head is like your driving one. Right, right. The one okay. that you take your first initial hit to get, you know, as much distance as possible. So I believe that it is one of the skinnier head headed golf clubs, Yeah. but by so, all means, do not take my word for it. Let me see if I can get this to. So it's kind of like a like the it's hybrid like a, between mm-hmm. in between both of them. Yeah. So definitely not an easy God damn, these things are I can't imagine breaking one. Well, Four and times. You, you look at the head of that one too and pretty um sharp, you know. Yeah. With, the, with the structure of that. So yeah. I, Autopsy results would later reveal that Martha had been beaten and even stabbed in the neck by that (gasps) golf club and had likely died around 10 p.m. that evening. So witnesses are saying that she left around 945. We're talking within 15 minutes of her having left the house that night. They noted that the blows to the head and concluded that she had been struck about a total of nine times and this totally looked like a case of overkill, something personal, yeah. very gruesome. And they're now thinking that this was probably someone that Martha knew. So they also felt like um, this was somebody close to Martha as well, because she had no signs of defensive wounds. So either she was completely caught off guard and blindsided by this attack, or she was approached safely, you know, as safe as she thought she could be. It happened right out, at least she was found right outside her house. So that's, you know, also weighing into the whole, she was, she knew who it was probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we're talking about a suburb, you know, probably not a whole lot of strange people running around in 1975 in a well-to-do suburb. Right. Like you don't have a lot of big streets running through your, through your neighborhood or, you know, if you're not in that, from that neighborhood, you don't really have a reason to pass it maybe or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's what I could imagine for sure. So they have all of this information from the autopsy, and now they need to start looking at suspects. And the first people that they turn to are the Skakel brothers, Michael and Thomas. They said that Martha had been with them that night, hanging out and, you know, partaking in the mischief. And according to Michael, he said that he had left at 9.15 that night to go with his cousin back to his house to go watch a movie. Okay. Thomas and a few others had stayed back at the Skakel house where they all hung out. And it's uh, worth noting that they weren't just like hanging out as friends that night. Other witnesses would end up revealing that Thomas and Martha were very flirtatious with one another. They were even seen to be sharing a kiss around 930 that night. So shortly before Martha left to go home at 945. 
And this romance apparently was a bit of a surprise to Martha's friends. I don't know if they just got like caught up in Mm. the moment of the mischief and were carrying it out that way. Or maybe they had like this secret relationship going on that people didn't really I mean, they're kids pumped full of hormones at this age. Totally. And they're not at school. They're outside the school setting, you know, Mm -hmm. on Halloween night. Like... I, yeah, like, if they were already flirting and they were, you know, being kids, right? This is bound to happen. You've got that very appealing, slightly older boy. You're 15, he's 17. There's yeah. the appeal that falls into that, you know, your friend's older brother. Yeah. They're running around together. They're egging. They're, you know, endorphins are running high. Dopamine's exactly. running high. Yeah. Exactly. So there are some pictures, you can find them online, of Martha's diary entries, and they are worth Mm. noting to kind of just like paint a little bit of a picture of the current situation in the Skakel brothers. So Martha had some diary entries that described her hanging out recently with Michael and Thomas. They, you know, were kind of doing like normal high school kid things, going out to get ice cream. And in this one entry, Martha describes riding in Thomas's car, pretty much sitting on his lap, Thomas putting his hand on her knee, letting her kind of drive his car with his guidance. So that type of flirtatious vibe going on. And then Martha also had other diary entries that would reveal her dislike for Michael. And it seemed that um, she was kind of annoyed with Michael for interjecting himself into her flirtations with Thomas. And um, there was even one where she described that she felt like Michael was kind of leading on one of her friends who he didn't like actually like, but he was being flirtatious with her, you know, that whole high school thing and she was kind of annoyed to the point that one of her entries stated that she needed to stop hanging out at the Skakel household okay so um and then she also notes on a couple different occasions about Michael being drunk it seemed like Michael really liked to party and was kind of into that whole troubled scene and all of that And that is a little detail about Michael worth noting, because that is going to come back and play a part as well. So according to Thomas, he um, confirmed as well and said that Martha had left their house around 945 that evening. And the Skakel brothers did have quite the reputation, and it was not a great one at that. So after their mom had passed away it basically left their dad Rushton Skakel to care for the seven Skakel children Michael and Thomas and then their five other siblings and it seemed that the brothers these two specifically felt like they were just totally untouchable given the fame of their Kennedy family line and this whole part of the case feels very Murdoch I was I really just looked that up because I needed to remember the last name. Yeah, I was like, this is giving me full on Murdoch vibes. Like, this is two kids that are like family has all the money in the world. Yeah, like dad knows the sheriff kind of vibes. You know, I mean, they're out 
egging and toilet papering houses and quite literally a night of mischief. And they're like, mm-hmm. we can do whatever. Exactly. Yeah, totally giving Murdoch vibes, like 70s Murdochs. A hundred percent. Yep. Okay. So with the dad spread thin, taking care of seven kids and traveling for work, this left the kids alone a lot. Yeah. And so what do you do when your parents are out of town? You throw parties, you have yep. people over, there's lots of underage drinking going on, you know, everything that comes along with that. And the boys were also known to be pretty short tempered and competitive with one another. So again, like could not give any more Murdoch vibes than everything that this (laughs) is is describing. Um, Thomas was said to be the last person to be seen with Martha that night. And at that point he became the prime suspect, but throughout the investigation, they never landed on enough evidence to arrest Thomas on anything. And he had an alibi for that evening as well. Mm. So 24-year-old Ken Littleton, who was the Skakel's new live-in tutor, had just moved in that day on October 30th. And according to Ken, he said that him and Thomas were busy watching TV around 10 p.m., which was noted by the coroner that that was probably her most likely time of death. Yeah. Now, Ken also noted that there was nothing off about Thomas's behavior that evening, like, you know, that he had left and come back and acting skittish or anything like that. Um, But decades later, they would end up finding out that Ken and Thomas were watching TV more around 1030-ish p.m. and not 10 o'clock. And all of that is like, you know such a tight timeline that it's kind of hard to like really pinpoint people in their places and stuff like that definitively like it does leave a little bit of a short window for Thomas to have run off and done this but again it's still a very tight window for such a gruesome murder and for someone to commit it get cleaned up and hop on a couch and be watching tv with somebody and act like totally normal well and there's this other factor that you know back in the day I mean as back as early as 15 years ago you could say I'm watching this show and you're kind of trying to build an alibi because you know that show comes on at exactly this time nowadays you can't even do that because of all the streaming services and Mm -hmm. all the you know on-demand tv watching you can do where you can say, you know, I was watching XYZ show, but that could be at any time. But if they mixed up at all the show that they were watching, they could probably prove, yeah, it wasn't until 1030 that that show was on instead of 10. That's true. And I didn't even think about that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's yeah. like, you know, Happy Days comes on at exactly. 10 p.m. every Friday I, night. I, I can't recall the specific cases, but I know we've covered some cases where it's like, oh, this person said they were watching this and that didn't really come on till this time or, you know, their alibi is wrong or their story <laughs> is wrong. So it's just very interesting that, you know, in this point in time, in the 70s, that's still a thing. So if it wasn't until 20 years later, it's because they probably still had a TV guide to go back to to say. Exactly. Yep. It came folded in with the Sunday paper. 
right this is what's supposed to be on and then it wasn't so just totally no that absolutely makes sense and I didn't even think about that but you're you're a hundred percent right um so throughout the investigation, Thomas was also given two different polygraph tests. The first one came back inconclusive, and then the second one he passed. Okay. They also gave Ken, the live-in tutor, a polygraph test, seeing and seeing that he had not been a hundred percent truthful, kind of giving two different timelines for him having been with Thomas. Um, and he also failed to answer some key questions truthfully on this polygraph test, but ultimately they didn't really have anything to tie him to the murders other than them kind of suspecting that he didn't have his timeline correct, which right. we're talking 30 minutes. So it's not like a difference of six hours or something sure. like that. So very, very unreliable and conclusive, right. you know tidbits they had surrounding what Ken told them. Um, but after that evening, it seemed like the family just completely wanted to cut ties with Ken and he was let go from his tutoring position, like pretty much immediately after this all interesting ended up playing out. So I don't really know how much is worth noting about that. If it was like, uh, maybe you know too much, we're just going to eliminate you from the picture Mm -hmm. because you're not going to benefit this family by sticking around or we just don't need anyone close to us. Right. That could overhear or. Yes. That's what I was thinking. Anything like that. Um, And in one podcast I was listening to that covered this, um, Ken like really went off off the deep end after all of this. And I don't know if it was because of like his quick, like 15 minutes of fame and having his name tied into this murder. Maybe he was getting some threats or people didn't, didn't believe him or thought that maybe he was involved somehow, but it doesn't sound like Ken really did too hot after. um, Oh, poor guy. Brief little day on the job too. You're with his family for 24 hours and it kind of ruined your life. Jesus. (laughs) You know. So investigators turn away from Thomas and they turn back to um, questioning Michael. And Michael's original alibi was that he was with his cousin who he left with that that night watching Monty Python at the time that Martha was murdered. And he left back for his house around 11 30 PM. So he was with his cousin from roughly nine 15 to 11 30. Now later Michael's story would change. And he said that he was on the Moxley property from 11 30 PM to 12 30 AM. And the activity that he was partaking in was sitting up in a tree, window peeping, masturbating. Watching in on Martha. Trying to, trying to get a look in on somebody um but he does say that he was on the moxley property property okay that evening and i know we talked about this on the last episode but it's like why would you say this and the only thing that i can come up with is that you just want to tell some outrageous fantastical story that makes people not want to question you any further Well, I think it's part of, and I don't know that he was smart enough to do this, but it obviously sounds like he 
got his way a lot, right? Because we're talking about the comparisons to him and Murdoch family. But it, it's, I think it's one of those like psychology tricks that you can do where it's like someone will believe you mm-hmm. if you tell an embarrassing story. Right. And I think that's exactly what's happening there. Totally. He's like, why would I make up this, you know, self-deprivating story and tell the officers that's my alibi if it weren't true? Exactly. Or, you know, it's like saying I, you know, was sitting there picking my boogers. Right. And something like that. Or I was, you know, shitting my my, my pants or something like that. Just an embarrassing story where you're like... I'm not going to question you because that's an embarrassing story. Exactly. Because what are you going to, what are the follow-up questions to that? Like, what were you using for lube kids? Like, yeah. what, like, you know, what do you, uh, were, did you use? you do often? <laughs> right. Or did you, you know, clean yourself off with your shirt or your pants or some leaves? Like, what, what are the follow-up questions? Because it's such an embarrassing story right. or personal intimate story that he's like, oh, well, they're not going to question me further. I think exactly. that's what that is. I, I, I 100% agree yeah. with you. Yeah, most definitely. And that was his story. He says that he said that he was drunk, stoned, and horny, and he was hoping to catch a glimpse of something. So like you said, where does your line of questioning go yeah. after that? I mean, they're home alone, so he could have done something else at home. You know, I'm sure these kids probably had magazines at home and whatnot. So totally. I, yeah it's totally a bullshit those, story those good old 1970s playboy <laughs> yeah. magazines he probably has some home and garden magazines at home he could do it too and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly martha was hot back in the day <laughs> right so after all of this there was nothing to link michael or thomas or really anyone else to the murder and the case went cold and we make a huge jump all the way to 1991 Now, I know, huge, huge jump. So the Skakel dad, Russian Skakel, decided that he wanted to hire a private investigation team to investigate Martha's murder. And it seemed like his motive to do this was to try to find any way to take the spotlight off of his family. Then stop hiring a private investigator (laughs) when you're not her immediate family. Exactly. Um, So he made the team of investigators, which was made up of a group of like retired police officers and stuff like that. Probably people that he had had ties to in the community for years and years. Um, And basically more or less got them to agree to NDAs that they wouldn't reveal any information that they uncovered during the investigation. And I think that Rushton wanted to put these investigators out there, receive all of the information that they dug up and and for him to be the one to determine whether or not that information was made public knowledge. So either I'm going to hire these people and they're truly going to think that my son or sons were involved and I'm going to do whatever I can to keep that information hush or they're going to dig up something that takes the bullseye off of my family. Right. And I'm going to push forward with that. Then he would give away the information. But man, that's a lot of money to spend for. Especially if they weren't on top of your kids. I mean, 16 years had passed already. By the right. time you're going to hire a whole last team. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
So this agency that he had put together worked for about three years on the case, and they worked up a report that said that Thomas had not killed Martha, but that it was most likely Michael who did it that evening. And it also suggested that if Thomas was involved in any way, shape, or form, it was to help move Martha's body. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which would make sense. You know, we're talking about a 15-year-old dragging the dead weight of another, you know, 100-ish pound body. So they were kind of like, we're kind of leaning more towards Michael. But if Thomas was involved, that's maybe where his, you know, how he was involved came in. Now, this whole report got leaked in 1995, which obviously was not Russian's plan at all. Yeah. And even with that, still the case went cold for a couple decades until another Kennedy made his way into the spotlight. So William Kennedy Smith was on trial for rape. He was tried and and acquitted, but during the trial, a rumor popped up that William had been at the Skakel house on the night of October 30th, 1975. Wow. Investigators followed up on this rumor, but were able to determine that William had not been there that night. And although this wasn't the lead that they had been hoping for, it kind of rejuvenated the efforts to keep looking for Martha's killer. Sure. So it kind of reignited that flame a little bit. And Greenwich police began to follow up on Michael being that person because of also this information that they received from this leaked investigation. So what they kind of ended up finding out about Michael is that, um, so at some point in his life, Michael attended a troubled youth school called the Elon school. (laughs) And this was, this is going to be a mouthful. This school was a private co-educational residential behavior modification program and therapeutic boarding school in Maine. (laughs) I, my brain could not even, it's okay. That's a lot of, that's a, that's a lot they do there. It's a lot of specialties <laughs> that they focus on at this school. Um, so this was after Michael had been arrested for a DUI when he was 17 and his dad was kind of like, I'm done with you. You're drinking, you know, you're doing all of these things that you're not supposed to be doing. Um, We're just going to ship you off to this school. And some former classmates of Michael's, John Higgins and Gregory Coleman came forward and said that Michael had confessed to them that he had fragmented memories of Martha's murder from that evening. Coleman would later testify that Michael told him that Martha rejected his advances towards her and that he quote, drove her skull in with a golf club. Now I know that we talked about in the last episode, that's what I kind of felt like if Michael had any involvement, that that's where his motivation came from. I think that he had a crush on Martha. He Mm -hmm. was jealous that her attention was going more towards his brother, Thomas, and that there had to have been some rejection that happened along the lines somewhere especially if he had been drunk too it would have escalated really quickly totally and they were noted to be short-tempered and all of that kind of stuff so 
does not surprise me at all that this uh, Gregory Coleman is claiming that that's what Michael told him. And Michael was also quoted saying, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. Oh my God, you're an idiot. Really trying to play that card. Yeah. Um, So Michael was the nephew to Robert F. Kennedy, who was JFK's brother. And after about 18 months and interviewing over 40 witnesses, Michael ended up being arrested for Martha's murder and was indicted by a very, very rare one-man grand jury. Wow. Yeah. That is rare. Super rare. And I don't know exactly why or how all of that played out. Um, If it had to do with him being a minor at the time or oh. if they just presented it to like one judge and that one judge indicted him. Oh, I, I don't see. Know, but you know, yeah. Because usually, I mean, obviously, a grand jury is supposed to be like a cross section of the community. Exactly. And the evidence is so much against you that they're like, yes, go ahead and move forward with pressing charges. But for one person to do it, it either had to have been someone with some experience, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like you said, a judge, just like a bench order that, you know, go ahead and go ahead and arrest him or some kind of arbitrator that looks at all the evidence. Yeah, that is bizarre. Super bizarre. And I also kind of wonder too, like, because they had ties to the Kennedy and maybe, you know, obviously had some power with the neighborhood and stuff, maybe they kind of felt like we don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. We yeah. just want to present this to one knowledgeable yep. person and That's to let them point. make the decision. That's a good so point. That was kind of a thought that I had around that. Um, so at first, Michael's case was sent to juvenile court because he was a minor at the time of the murder. But at this point, Michael's like 41-ish years old. And thank God, after five months of deliberation, the juvenile court judge decided that the case would be tried as an adult. Okay. As it should be. I Plus mean, he was 17. We're not talking about a 13 year old, you know, right. it, you're close enough. Well, and Michael was 15 at the time. Oh, that's right. It was Thomas that was 17. Yeah. So he was okay. really young, but I mean, you now have a 41 year old person. Right being indicted on murder no you don't get to be tried as a kid (laughs) a kid yeah with that much you know time having gone by so on may 7th 2002 was when michael's trial began to which he pled not guilty the whole time no surprise there sure So diving into the trial, um, the most crucial piece of evidence for the prosecution was Michael's ever-changing alibi. He had claimed to be at his cousin's house initially, but then had changed his story, admitting that he was on the Moxley property, actually. Um, There was also Michael's admission to his classmates that he had killed Martha and would get away with it because of his ties to the Kennedys. And... Before Michael's trial, Gregory Coleman, who had made that original statement that Michael had confessed to him, unfortunately had died of an overdose, but his testimony was still read to the jury at his trial. 
which held, I mean, I guess I don't really want to say held a lot of weight with the information that I'm going to tell you next, but it was still a pretty key part for them to make their indictment was him coming forward, claiming that Michael had told him that. Now, there was debate about how credible Coleman's statement was because he also admitted to being high on heroin when he was giving his statement. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So really does not help that situation and and discredits him. Now, John Higgins, who was the other classmate, did testify that Michael had been sobbing when he confessed to him, saying he didn't know whether or not he had killed her. It seemed Michael was very intoxicated that night, and Michael said to him that he remembers there being a party at his house. At one point, he remembers being in his garage, and then he has memory of running through the woods and remembers holding a golf club in his hand, looking up and seeing pine trees. Hmm. Now, during the cross-examination, Michael's attorney hones in on the fact that John was not there to physically witness what had, what had happened that night, therefore trying to discredit his testimony hmm. altogether and being like, listen, all of this is very circumstantial. This is kind of a he said, she said situation. Now, could Michael have been drunk that night and really truly only have fragmented memories of it? Right. Yeah, that's definitely possible, but we don't really have any hard evidence or him testifying saying, yeah, that's true. That's all I remember or whatever. And so throughout Michael's initial trial, as you can imagine, with the Kennedy name being tied to this, the scene outside the courthouse was just like a pure media circus. Yeah, This is getting very, very sensationalized and all of that. And on June 7th, 2002, ultimately Michael Skakel was convicted of her murder and was given a sentence of 20 years to life in prison. And it's not just such an open and shut case. Right, right. Because <laughs> like I'm like, that. 20 years, that's not, it's not a lot of time, but he's also already 40. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So just when you think that that's probably where this all ends, and it most certainly does not. Months after the trial, Robert Kennedy Jr., who is Michael's cousin. Right. This is also the same Robert Kennedy Jr. that's currently running as an independent in the uh, presidential. Oh, like actually right now? hmm Oh. And he's, I'm sure some of our listeners or maybe you have, um, he was, this is all also the Robert Kennedy that was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast that went like pretty viral for his interview that he did with Joe. They like get on hot topic about like vaccines and all of that kind of stuff. And so um, that was kind of a fun fact for me to learn that he has these ties all the way back to Michael's trial right? with all of this. So Months after the trial, Robert Kennedy Jr. comes forward and said that he had information that would prove Michael's innocence and would completely exonerate his cousin. He claims that there was a tip that came from a a man named Tony Bryant, who was another former classmate of Michael's, and that Tony said that he knew the identity of Martha's killers. 
So Tony said that on that night, he had taken two friends, Adolf, who went by Al Hasbrook and Burton Tinsley. He took them to Bellhaven and that there was no doubt in his mind that they were the ones that were involved in her murder. Tony claimed that Al was absolutely obsessed with Martha and was completely jealous when it came to her pretty much having anything to do with any other guy. And Tony also stated that Al and Burton picked up golf clubs from the Skakel backyard and that they wanted to quote unquote hurt someone that night. I know. Tony also alleged that he told the two of them that he did not want anything to do with what they were going to do that night to go and hurt somebody and that he left Bellhaven. So apparently shortly after the murder, the three of them were hanging out again. And that's when they confessed to Tony that they had fulfilled their goal of hurting someone that night, but they never revealed exactly who that was. They just said that they had hurt somebody that night. So Tony is led to believe that Martha is that person. Right. He saw them with golf clubs, you know, that whole thing. That's weird. Super, super weird. So this is what Robert Kennedy is coming forward saying, like, I know this person that has told me this claim. It's these two guys that killed Martha. And also in a Today Show interview, Robert Kennedy Jr. claims that he also knows of five different witnesses that put Michael 11 miles away from the murder that night, but but that Michael's original attorney never looked into these witnesses in his first trial. So that sounds like a lot of money was spent. Sounds like a lot of, yes. Some power moves. Yeah. I'm trying to throw some people under the bus. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree. So in 2005, Michael, um, Michael's attorney filed an appeal with this new evidence that was brought forth. And this would be the first of four different appeals filed over the years, all of which were denied. I'll just go ahead and say that. Um, But with this first one, there was a hearing to listen to this new evidence, but Tony refused to testify under oath. Of course. Yeah. There was not enough supporting evidence to retake this to trial. And Tony also had a rap sheet and was totally not a reliable witness at all. He had yeah. a little bit of a criminal record, which involved things like tax evasion and armed robbery. Yeah. And he probably had a couple, like a new couple thousand dollars in his bank account. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. A couple, few, 10. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Now, on October 23rd, 2013, Michael won an appeal and was granted a new trial on the basis that he was not adequately represented in his initial trial. And as a result, Michael was released on a $1.2 million bail on November 13th of 2013. Wow. When he was released, he did have to wear a tracking device and he was ordered to stay away from the Moxley family, have no contact with them whatsoever, which totally makes sense. Now, three years later in 2016, a Connecticut Supreme Court ruled in a four to three decision that his representation at the time was indeed valid and his conviction was reinstated and he was taken back to jail. That's wild. I know. That he was out. mm Mm-hmm. 
this goes back and forth so many times. It's another like whiplashy case. Totally crazy. So it didn't stop there. Two years later, in May of 2018, the court reversed its ruling again with another four to three decision that the evidence of Michael's alibi was not represented by his defense attorney in his original trial, and he was released. What? Gosh, I mean, it doesn't have to be something egregious for it to be ruled that your defense was not adequate. Either they didn't have the right credentials or they knew evidence and they didn't bring it forward that would have helped you. Or it has to be something like enormous. Like a blatant neglect of representation. Right. Like he, you know, he misquoted this or, I mean, it has to be big. Mm-hmm. it couldn't have just been like oh it was a new attorney or you know right so do we know what that was that they thought it was inadequate I I just kind of says from what I could find that his his alibi wasn't presented well yeah that okay to... so that must be what it is okay mm-hmm. that they were like hey there's all these other factors that could have been presented in his defense and his defense didn't present him. And I think that seed was planted by Kennedy Jr. Definitely. Enough to where when it was taken to a jury of whether or not the defense was competent, there was Mm -hmm. enough doubt to be like, there's all this other evidence, whether it's proved to be factual evidence or not, it drove a wedge. Holy moly. That's yeah. the power of money. It really, it really, really is. And I think it's also worth noting that we're talking about 1975. Like, yes, I'm sure a lot of that evidence was taken in and, you know, like held and stuff like that, but yeah, we don't have a lot of technology with DNA. I mean, yeah, they right. could fingerprint at the time. They could look at hairs and stuff like that, but everything in all of this from Michael's alibi to Thomas's alibi to Ken to everything that Robert Kennedy brings forward all of it is so infuriatingly circumstantial right and as we know in order to convict somebody you have to find them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and I think all of these little avenues of people coming forward and this story from this person and this story from that person painted a lot of doubt to where the state ultimately felt like they did not have a good enough case to try to keep Michael right. in prison, even though he seems like the most likely person right. from, from his temperament like a- and his reputation to Martha's diary entries of not wanting to be around the brothers anymore, you know, and all of that sort of yeah. stuff. And my heart aches for the Moxley family to go first couple decades with no arrest. Right. And then to have an arrest finally of, of course, the person you knew already had likely done it and then release back and forth and go back and rearrested and re-released on technicalities. And so they're just reliving all of this you know they're rethinking in their head you know the entire man that's sad 
It's, it's so sad. And what, and what is the biggest slap in the face is on October 30th of 2020, the 45th anniversary of Martha's death, the state would officially announce that they would not be retrying Michael because the state would not be able to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Wow. Like it's one of those things, like you couldn't have waited a day later to make yeah. that announcement you're gonna announce that on on the anniversary. the anniversary of her murder like if I had been one of her family members I would have just been completely devastated yeah I mean that that news in of itself would be a hard pill to swallow yeah but then to have it announced on the anniversary of her That's murder, such a hard day already. Such a hard day and just lacks so much compassion. Yeah. Totally what this shit. family has been through over almost 50 years of trying yeah. to put or keep somebody in prison. Yeah. Now, Martha's mom, Dorothy, stands firm in her belief that Michael took her daughter's life that evening. Yeah. And sadly enough, Dorothy would pass away. Um, She just passed away in August of this year and having never truly gotten justice for her daughter. And with all of this, the Martha Moxley case technically remains unsolved and a cold case with, um, with Michael's release. So what's Michael? I mean, is he a politician? Jesus. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. I have no idea what he's doing nowadays, um, but he's a free man walking and what either a- he's a free man who committed this or there's somebody else out there. Maybe that has ties to the family. I don't want to insinuate anything, but I we, mean, we, yeah. we know we know the power of power and right. names in communities, especially small communities. If you have any <laughs> sum of money to help. Right. Uh your yourself make your case or to paint somebody else as the bad guy. I mean, I wouldn't put it past anyone who has, you know, a substantial amount of money to want to persuade someone to even fall on the sword for any amount of money. Sure. You know? Yeah, that's wild. Like you said, the power of power is mm-hmm. wild. And it, it is crazy. I can't believe he got on a technicality of in, inadequate counsel yeah. when the doubt of whether or not they were adequate was this alibi that was brought up even years after he was convicted. And and that's I, crazy. And I want to know like <laughs> why his defense didn't bring forward his alibi. Like I'm curious, like, okay, at the time of his initial trial. Did you not feel like his alibi held any weight or did did he not tell him about it? Sure. Or did you think it was going to incriminate, incriminate him falsely in some way? So you didn't even want to bring it up. So I like, or they couldn't prove it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it would have been another circumstantial. He said, she said, I mean, his cousin could have came forward and totally vouched for him, but was his cousin credible? Maybe they right. didn't feel like his cousin was somebody credible to validate his his alibi. So, so many questions. 
sadly one of those cases that, you know, you, you think you got the person and like you said, they get cut loose on a technicality, which just really twice. grinds my gears. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Thank you for doing the, 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 a big cover on that. Cause it, it was definitely whiplash hearing the short story. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I know. Just doing the quick notes on it. I was like, okay, that like kind of paints the picture, but it's just like a little tiny cartoon sketch of a much bigger. Yeah, there's a lot more to there's a lot more to see there. So that was that's a great case. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I want to see what he's up to now. Same. Yeah, I know now now that you brought that up, I don't know if he's just kind of hiding out. Maybe he's changed his name and moved out of the country or if how do you spell Skagel? Um S K A K E L. Oh, Martha's so cute. She was adorable. And oh my gosh, I mean they'll they'll come up if you um search her death but there are pictures of the broken golf club that um are available to find and it's pretty jarring to see this golf club broken in so many different pieces um so at the end of the day, I mean, just so brutal. I mean, she was hit nine times in the head with that golf club and then to be stabbed in the neck, like totally a crime of passion, in my opinion. And from everything that we know, I, I mean, I definitely think that Michael seems like the most likely person to have done it, but they did a good job of painting reasonable doubt. And that's kind of what win, wins cases sometimes, sadly. Right. For some, and fortunately for some, you know. Right. So. That's interesting. What yeah. a great case. Thanks, Bree. Absolutely. Well, do we have any other news to no. note? Nope. All? I think we are all good. We're up to date. We are working our schedules so we can try and do the holidays um, as much as we can from here to the end of the year. Just, you know, trying to work out schedules. And I know someone reached out to us, make sure we were okay since we hadn't put out an episode. And um, so if you, if you, ha- I think it was like two episodes ago, we explained like, hey, with the holidays, you know, we do this for free. We do this for fun. So um, we are just trying to fit it all in because we don't want to rush to uh, look up a a case and not do it justice because that would be the last thing I would want to do. So, you know, instead of either rushing or cramming to study a case, we um, sometimes we just need to take a, a quick break of a weekend or two so we appreciate you so much looking um you know checking in on us to make sure we're doing okay we're both doing good yes (laughs) just a lot of stuff a lot of stuff going on you know uh Bree's a new mom uh so I I'm not a mom so I can't even imagine how much her hands are full right now um and then you know we always got stuff going on and it's just the holidays so yeah are gearing up for the holidays and I mean this is I mean I know this year is going to be a big year for Thanksgiving for us yeah 
Um, lots of family coming into town. So mm. um, again, we appreciate you so much caring and noticing our absence because that 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 just gives me all the fuzzy feels that you guys are noticing we're not there. So I appreciate you. Uh, but other than that, um, I guess I'm already thinking ahead of 2024 New Year's resolution. So I'm like, I want to be better at social media. I am absolutely terrible at social media. Uh, but yeah, we're just, uh, you know, it's all jokes, but we uh, we really will try and step up our social media game. So things like that don't happen where you know where we're at if we're missing a week. So exactly. We did not get snatched up by any strangers. We're we're totally fine. Yeah, no. um, Yeah, so we'll catch you guys on the next episode. As always, don't be a stranger, and we will see you then. Bye. Bye.